comparison is the thief of all joy. We don't need to compare with everybody to do something that we feel is good. People need to decide for themselves what they want and what they want to do. Welcome to Unspoken Bravery. I'm your host, Aaron Milzinski, a multiple-time Olympian. Skiing started as my first love and quickly became my greatest teacher. This podcast is meant to take a deep dive behind the capes of our everyday superheroes and find out what's under the brave spirits, the fearless feats, and the nerves of steel. It's normal to feel fear. Hardships lurk around every corner. And yet these roadblocks can be met with a challenger's mindset and turned into wonderful gifts. It's time to celebrate imperfections, to build bravery from setbacks, and to take our goals to the next level. So let's dive right in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode three of Unspoken Bravery. Our guest today relates to my past and my history, and so I'll tell you a little bit about that. I started skiing on snow and water before I was two years old. I was more naturally talented as a water skier. I came second at the junior worlds in the jump event and first at the junior masters before I decided to hang up my boards and focus on alpine skiing. And so our guest today is Ryan Dodd. And not only did Ryan coach me in my last year as a water skier, but he's also the best jumper in the world. He has over 45 pro wins. He has won the last four world championships. He is the world record holder at 254 feet, which is almost the length of a football field. And what's really cool is that he grew up skiing on a family farm in Northern Alberta in the livestock watering hole. But I think what's really special, and I think what sometimes we miss is humanizing our athletes and saying what they are beyond the results. So Ryan is also a dad. He's a business owner. He donates his time and money to Homes of Hope, which builds homes for families in Mexico. He's had multiple setbacks and injuries, including a life-threatening head injury. And so welcome, Ryan. I am so excited and honored to talk to you. And it's kind of crazy how it's been a minute and it's really cool to see how our lives separated and come back together. So welcome. Thank you. That was a very special welcoming. Yeah. I thought I was just a skier from a little farm in Canada, but made it sound pretty cool. <laughs> it is cool. <laughs> but can you explain to us, most people think water skiing is going around buoys. And when I say I used to be a jumper, people are a little bit confused. Yeah. Can you explain what water ski jumping is, what kind you do, and also explain a little bit about how dangerous it is? Yeah, for sure. So basically the boat's going 35 miles an hour straight down the lake. And we pull out to the side of the boat all the way up to 90 degrees. We're on a 75 foot rope. We are trying to generate speed and angle. So we are waiting fairly late in relation to the ramp. We turn our skis towards the ramp and we ride this pendulum effect of the rope behind the boat. We hit the ramp at 70 miles an hour, approximately 110 K or whatever it is. And we six foot ramp for the men just fly up into the air and we sort of sail like the snow ski jumpers and we just we try to look like that and we hope we land. So it's a super exhilarating sport to go from say 35 miles an hour to 70 in a split second. 
as you are aware of, and just super exciting to feel the sensation of flying. And it's a very dynamic sport. There's obviously a risk involved. And at some point you're going to get hurt. It's part of the deal. Yeah. And I think as an Alpine skier, we can relate, we can kind of, you know, for us, it's also kind of how straight you can go and the speed you can generate, but I know you work so hard in the gym and a lot of that work is to perform, but it's also injury prevention. And as Alpiners, yeah. we can kind of relate to that. But yeah, I've seen some just Google water ski jump crashes. I don't think we have to talk about it. People can Google that. And it's kind of a crazy sport and it's what I miss the most, that feel of flying, which you still have. I don't have it anymore. <laughs> um, you can still fly if you go off a little, little something on the snow. <laughs> yeah. On my slalom skis, <laughs> throw a little grab in, but I would love, okay. So fear for me, I've done so much work with fear. I've named my fear. I've tried to be okay with my fear. And I'd love to talk to you about fear because as you say, you're not a huge daredevil. You had your sister try things before you to make sure they were safe. And on the Alpine circuit, it's kind of interesting because our sport is dangerous at times too, but it seems like people maybe aren't as evolved in face of fear. People kind of compete to see who feels less fear. You're kind of shamed if you feel fear. This is from my perspective. And so for me, I've tried to push all realms of feeling fear. I've tried to face fear in order to get better, you know, cliff jumping, skydiving. But to be honest, I'm I'm also not a daredevil. I invest like a seven-year-old man. I do all these things. And I would love to hear fear from you from such a dangerous sport. I know from me looking up to you when I was little that you just always seemed fearless. Yeah, it's interesting what the outside perspective is versus the inside, I bet you. And I've tried to share that with even my competitors and friends and you know people I coach or on a podcast like I think the worst thing at least an athlete can do is try to block their fear. Because to me, it, it's there for a reason. It's telling us something. It's to be best utilized. It's going to help control. It's it's going to send us natural painkillers and hormones and things we can utilize to perform our best. The challenge is, can we harness the fear or will it take take control of us? If the fear gets uncontrollable, in the moment of performance, then we're like, it can shut us down. Like it can disable people. It can turn off physical function and mess up your mind or, you know, I've, and I've had it like, honestly, in the prisms of these recent world championships with everything I know in all my experience, I felt like it started to take me over, but I'm also so aware of, I guess that's how it's supposed to be. And it worked out quite beautifully. I've read a lot of different books on it. One, like the rise of Superman was one. I believe by Stephen Kotler, quite a few different books on it and different sports psychologists. And then just my own experience. I really feel like it's useful. I feel like it's healthy to listen to it, but you have to have a strategy. You have to have routines. You have to have some sort of practice to be able to harness it when it comes to you. I think like you're suggesting the training to deal with fear and facing like different levels of fear, I think is probably a great idea. And the more ways you could do that, if it's calculated into a proper strategy and training plan, that would be great. Like I've pe- overcoming phobias. Like if you can overcome the things that are like overwhelming, like you're obviously becoming a more powerful person. So I think that's great. But the mindset of being fearless, that's not what that is. That's different, I think. So I, I think it's very sensitive topic and it needs you need to have very specific strategy for the person on how they 
sort of educate themselves on their fears, how they harness them, how they utilize them. I think that's very important. That's so cool. And it's so cool to sit here and hear you say that because I've started it a little bit more recently. A lot of my fear is more fear of failure than fear of getting hurt. I don't know somehow that that's what hits me because I'm a solemn skier. I don't go as fast. But what do you think was the difference? Because in 2013, I think you stood on the dock and you were ready and you were prepared and you were the top seed and you didn't have the performance of your life and it left something, you know, it was, it was, as you said, you went blank and I'm sure you went home and you felt like a failure a little bit in that moment, but then this world championships, you felt the fear, the fear as well, but you succeeded, you rose above, you conquered it and you won again, four times in a row. What do you think the difference was? And I, I asked you, I went back to all different world championship performances, all different successes and failures, visualized, got myself back into that moment and, and asked myself the same question to myself then and but in preparation for this. And then I still went into the prelims at this world's with probably the most overwhelming took me over fear I've ever experienced. But I think the number one difference was, and I've said this to other athletes, if you like, I wanted so badly to be a world champion that, and I felt so much like it was happening. I put so much on that. It almost just disabled me. Like it almost just, I was thinking nothing about wanting to have like this beautiful jump. I wasn't great. Like deep down, like what's, what are you craving? Like I would, the, the, when I didn't succeed at that world championships, I wasn't feeling this beautiful. Like we talked, you miss flying. Like that's what the, my favorite part of jumping is missing. Like the feeling of flying, like coming off and feeling the wind under your feet and the pull of the boat and the G force increasing and the explosion off the ramp. And that sensation is so much cooler than winning. I've won everything. One of my most exciting moments was just to jump at home in my backyard with Brianne driving, no one watching. And I had this crazy jump and I was screaming and throwing the fist and celebrating and the high was nuts. Right. And that it's, it's like, Oh, everyone's like, Oh, your process, like do your pro want your process, like all this stuff, but like truly craving the things that you can control more than the outcome, like actually, truly, like when you say you have a, like it physically come out, you like when you're hungry, you feel it like, or when you're overwhelmed with, you feel this, or you like someone, you said someone's crashed and they hinge themselves and you feel sick, right. To be able to like have that feeling, that hunger for just the, the actual like beautiful sensation of what the ultimate performance would feel like that I really started to embody that. And that shifted immensely to, because, and, and then the next year I won the world and, or I don't know which year I won the world, a world record, all the tournaments, I got athlete of the year, all this stuff. And I had a call with my performance coach, Jim Murphy. And he's like a week after, like, he's no big, we just talk. He's like, do you know, you could have done every single thing you did this year all of the outcomes been completely different. And I was like thinking, no, 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 I did it. He's like, no, trust me. It really could end up totally different with the same inputs. And I was like, huh. And I, then I, I almost didn't, I didn't believe him. I was like, no way I got this. It's in my control. And then I had years, you know, there's the last few years where it was like complete loss of control again, like the world, the universe, whatever this is took over. So I think just sort of, relinquishing some of that control, that kind of crazy need to get the outcome 
the savage hunger to beat my competitors, just when all that went away, it was like, oh, I could just jump and enjoy this experience and fly and push my comfort zone and be and like find out what creates that and like obsess over that. So there's a bit of a shift. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking because I'm trying to shift that too, because people always talk about our successes and our medals. You know, when someone introduces me, they have to introduce me as a three-time Olympian and a three-time world medalist, you know, and sometimes it can make you feel great. And sometimes it can kind of make you feel, well, for me, I haven't, it's been a while since I've podiumed. So sometimes it can make me feel like a failure. And so I'm kind of also trying to redefine success because I think, as you know, I work really hard. I try to control everything. I try to eat well, sleep well, be this great athlete. The success that people see is a lot different than what they expect for what I'm working towards or maybe Mm -hmm. how I ski. And so I'm also trying to redefine it a little bit. And so, you know, for me, my goal this year is to consistently come down at races and get that feeling. And I think the feeling that we're talking about is kind of that ease and some people call it flow state. And for me, it's not even flow state. It happens most of the time in training, but if that happens again and again in race, then I'm pretty happy walking away and knowing I did everything I can. It's those days when, you know, said you blank out. I think the difference is to, we can say these things, we can hear them, but to come to completely have that be your driver and honestly, nothing else matter. Like it, it can't matter to really hear someone say, Oh, it is challenging because you hear enough people say the same judgment of a person or myself. And then it like, it almost starts to stick again. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm here for a different reason. I'm doing something different. I have a different purpose. You know, I've had help to get to this mindset, but they, they can't understand and I can't blame them and I can't try to convince them and I don't even need to. And just to complete and a friend and during the well, and I've helped him a lot. Jared, his dad coached me. He just won the tricks at the world championships and almost beat me in jump. The kid that I've been coaching for two years through COVID. And because he was asking me about something like, no one's going to ever understand what you're driving, what you're there to do. You're not going to relate to people. It's going to feel weird, but you have to stick to it. And like at the world, I had just a technical setup. I had a whole plan. I wrote it all out for my setup in the finals at the last worlds. And I gathered data and I did observe a little bit from other people. And I was so close to changing it because it sounded totally bonkers. I even told it to my wife, Brianne. It sounded totally bonkers, but through all my experience, I'd calculated the probability of what this would do and what this would enable me to do. And even when I left the dock, I thought for a second, uh, and then I went, no, no, no. And then guess what? Only Brianne knows what I was trying to do. She said, when I turned my first setup at the 600, she knew I was winning just that. Wow, that's really cool. Because I, I completely overcommitted, which no one was doing even a similar setup, right? Everyone could say I was crazy. My prelims, my practice, my familiarization all looked totally bonkers. Matt Reaney, one of the previous coaches, he was down there. Doc, he doesn't work with me at all, but he was like, he was so confused and lost from what I was doing in practice. He's like, this looks, what are you doing? Should I get you? He asked if you should get me old videos of me from when I used to ski with him when I was 17. He's like, this is not you. And I just let it all breeze by and was like, doesn't understand. Yeah. Cause we all have and our own separate processes too. And sometimes it's the buy-in. Sometimes it's not even, you know, if you totally but, believe what you're doing and you don't change it, it can be more I think more the more, anything. yeah, that's, I think that is everything. Find out what, like, we, if you want that feeling at the bottom of the, and if you can just, if that becomes everything and 
blocking out all the distractions, all the other pros, all what the other skiers, the younger ones, the other ones, the older ones, the different coaches that are steering away. And I think just the more you can own exactly why you're doing it and what your own little reward system is, the better, regardless of the outcome, but the byproduct will be no doubt a better outcome. That's really cool. And that's something I need to get better at as well. I think it's, yeah, we've talked about it before and it's like the buy-in. And I think for me also, it's keeping kind of my, the way it works for us is a bit different. You know, we have a team and we have these coaches around us and everyone has the same coaches in Canada. But for me, it's also, you know, keeping that circle small and trusting it. And then, you know, making sure there's not that race day panic where you change everything just because you feel a little bit, you're trying to control, we call it controlling the unknowns and trying to protect yourself because that's why the brain goes into these what ifs, you know, like what if I fall? What if I fail? What if I crash? What if I don't win again? And the brain starts changing it. But if you're able to center yourself and say, Hey, this is my plan, I know this is going to work. And also taking complete responsibility if it doesn't. I think that that's such a powerful part of sport that often is behind the scenes and we don't see it. You'll learn the most by completely committing, regardless of outcome. And you'll learn even more if you did completely commit and you get a bad outcome. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's like, really, I was skiing down the lake off the dock in the finals and I almost changed just where I was, you know, like on the six, I was going to pull out this, I was going to take two overspeed it too seemingly way too much, especially for that win. And I almost backed off and just, oh, and then just, but I wouldn't have had the, I had this whole plan written out two pages of exactly what I was going to do. I'd visualize it. I thought about it. I'd seen it made no sense. Everyone is pulling out way different. And I'd spent a month devising this, but I hadn't tried it in practice because I was like, oh, it's a little higher risk, but way higher reward, higher probability, more possible, probable winning outcomes. But if I didn't do it and I won, I actually wouldn't have learned. Like I would just like got away with something, but this, like I got data, this worked better for next time, like in those conditions. And and if I did horrible and I did this in Malibu and I tried to very the thing that scared me the most, talk about fear. This was basically the same strategy as when I crashed in Malibu open, but I just thought about, and that was terrifying to think of. I'm basically going out doing the very similar strategy, but I had a few little twists to it that I learned from breaking my foot. Yeah. Yeah. And each was, time was, you fail. It was terrifying though. Wow. It was just, it was so painful. I was, I was still like shaken up like yeah it was fun to win but i was like still nervous for like a week like it it didn't go away like wow yeah yeah it was pretty bad <laughs> and then okay when you, so we're talking about injuries and we're talking about overcoming failure or setbacks and i've heard you say a few times that you know it's you know these setbacks can become i think of it kind of as a slingshot forward or a slingshot to somewhere completely different a course changing and you had a life-threatening head injury. And to me, from the outside, it looked like things changed completely. And I really feel for you. I've had one concussion. I lost memory. I also had to stay in a dark room. And that's when I kind of learned how to meditate because apparently that's the only thing that they've somewhat proven because the research is all still new to do anything to heal the brain. It's not like the body. And sometimes we have to, it seems like we have to have these traumas to learn something different. You know, I had to hit my head to learn how to meditate because I wasn't taking the time to do that. Yeah. Same. (laughs) And how do you take something 
as serious and traumatic and scary as a threat, a life-threatening head injury and turn it into lessons. But then how can the rest of us learn those lessons without, you know, getting a hit on the head? You know, can you help us get there to that point? Because sometimes that's what I feel like it is too. Sometimes you have to have these huge setbacks to propel you forward or else you just stay set in your ways. Yeah. And I'm on a coach's call with other coaches that coach inner excellence. Jim invited me to be on to share my perspective because he said, I'm like the client who's used his teaching the most. So to help his other coaches and relate to them, we've been talking once a week and I asked them as coaches, how do you do that? How do you help people continue to strive to be their best without having like serious trauma or, and I or asked what makes a client the best client for you? And they said, it's usually trauma. It's usually when something they really love or something they love the most is taken away or they just want something and they can't figure out how to get it. Or there's just pain and suffering. They don't know how to get away from. So all those things are definitely drivers for people to strive to be better. Another route to that same sort of question is I think people are afraid of trying. If you set, if you try to do something hard enough, like really like that's seemingly too hard, then the bare minimum to even have a chance of getting there is complete passion, drive, focus. I think people are just not choosing hard enough things. <laughs> Honestly, like this is the question I asked these performance coaches and psychologists. I'm like, I think people are just afraid of doing hard stuff. Like, w- why are we not doing just things that we think we can do? Because I want to be, why I'm thinking, why do I want to be this jumper? Why, well, what do I like from it? It seems impossible when we were a nine-year-old kid and I say, oh, I'm going to do what he did and break a world record. But when I, you say, oh, I want to do that for whatever reason, I'm like picking something impossible. And then, yeah, you're going to have to strive harder than everyone else to get it if it's impossible enough, almost. It got really hard for me when I hit all my goals that I had when I was nine. Then that was like, felt cool for a little while. And then it was like, whoa, like this is weird, you know? So maybe just got to keep setting, setting new ones or different ways to push ourselves. Yeah. And I think the same thing, it's like, you can set these performance goals, you know, you can say, I'm going to win every event this year, or I'm going to have another podium, or I'm going to be a five-time world champion. Yeah. But we don't have that much control over over them. So you have to set these daily goals a little bit too. And for me, it's a little bit, okay, how did I show up? Or, you know, how did I come into that turn? Was I better on my skis today? And setting these goals that we have, we can reach daily. So we feel the small successes more daily instead of just, you know, either success or failure at these huge goals. So when you were sitting in the dark room, your head's probably pounding, there's probably headaches, but what really changed for you? Like what lessons, what did the 180? There's just like, levels we think we're 100 committed like there's always another level like how 100 committed and i was just like if i had the scale at that time of like one to ten i was thinking i was like at nine but for some reason my head just was like i'm not even like on the scale yet like wake up like i'm not i'm not on it like it's this and i just yeah i, I don't know it just and i, I rated that same two month period, I met Jim Murphy and read his book. And then he's coached me mostly since. So honestly, the mindset learning was, I had those feelings on my own, but I didn't know what to do or how to, how to get there. Just total cleanse. Like you said, meditate. I started med. Jim had me learn to meditate every 
morning routine and cut out alcohol. And but one really interesting strategic moment, I was like met with Dave Pascovich, and I'm like, it was just like full confidence. I'm like, why am I not jumping farther? Why am I not jump farther for 10 years? Like, what's going on here? This is unacceptable. I know I can be the best. What's stopping me? And then we just like talked through my training process and percentage of times that I pushed my comfort zone and jumping and which days that I did, why I did it. We calculated like how often I pushed myself to my perceived edge in practice. And it was like, never. I'm just jumping for consistency. I can go to go, which was my strategy. He's like, go jump farther. That's not the strategy. And he's like, here's the percentage of jumps. He wrote all my jumps out in the air that you need to push to your edge and be more creative and imaginative in the ways that you find your edge or push your discomfort or face your fears every day, whatever they are. And then I was like, I am not even close. And he said this Mick Kingsbury, whatever. And he was like, oh, 75% of the time, blah, blah, blah. And I just did the math, the probability. I went home, kept a spreadsheet. And I'm like, scared myself like every day. And first tournament back, I did a five or seven foot personal best. And I was horrified, nervous to even ski. No thoughts of how far I would go. Just totally freaked out. And uh, somehow the outcome was just a monstrous personal best. Then I was at the Masters. I was just like disaster at the Masters. Never won a Masters. I remember I had an Epsom salt bath. I was like crying in the bath, totally losing it. And I won. Wow. It was just like, whoa, like, okay, this is different. Yeah. It was just things just, I think literally the head injury did change me. I'm not sure what definitely changed something. And then my, just, I just started getting help from people who are great. <laughs> so, yeah. Like filling in the toolbox. <laughs> and then you get comfortable at times and you stop finding new tools, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, no, that's really cool. And it's, it's cool too, that, you know, you seem to be a bit stuck for a few years and then you hit your head and made all these changes. You couldn't train. You took time off. Well, you had to take time off because that's how the head heals. Yeah, I was like eight months, no jumps. Yeah. And then you came back, PB, one masters, found this new mindset. And I think what's also cool, you kind of worked your whole life. You knew at 10 years old, your goal was to be a world champion and you worked your whole life to get there. It took a lot longer than you wanted to get there. But the thing is, is since yeah. then you, cause for Alpine, we kind of age out. People start looking at our ages on the start list. It always says our ages, how old we are. And that's very judged. But for you, you've had so much success since you were 30. And that's really when this upward trajectory and all of this success started that for me, it's not only really inspiring, but also shows how much we can learn, how much we can build our toolboxes and that these athletes can be so amazing at any right. point in time. The words we say mean a lot. And I think you, you have to change that narrative a bit and be an example that aging out doesn't have to exist. It's what you're gravitating towards, what you're thinking. It's what's in your head. It's what, and that's, that's the common narrative. That's what's going on. And, and honestly, like, that's what a lot of people want. They want us to age out so they can come in in there. It's also natural to think, but I've been through phases. Like there was like five years in there, maybe 25 to like 33, where like, I didn't even forgot like all it. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was so immersed in this momentum and all the stuff I was doing and thinking and feeling and working on that. And I've created a fairly distraction-free environment. I'm not really around many of the other athletes where we moved to a place where other skiers aren't. I don't go to many of the, I hadn't even jumped in another lake for two years. 
Like it, it, everyone's like, and it, cause things do get in our head. One of the competitors last year at the one tournament I went, the only tournament I went to when I broke my foot, he's like, after he's like, I don't know if he's my friend or not really, but he was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you just, I've always, you got to go to more tournaments. You got to go to other places. And I, I thought about it for a bit and I really thought, and then I'm like this winter, I was like, I have no preference for if I compete in four events before the worlds or zero. I was like, no, I thought about it. And like, I remembered it was in my head, one comment. And then I completely retract. It took me like six months. Like, no, that is not true for me. Yeah. And sometimes we recalibrate. And for years I would stand at the start and, you know, think change channels. If I was in the wrong thing, like visualize myself changing the channel because my brain wasn't where I wanted it to be. But I think that's really cool. And we always joke around that age is just a number, but I think that, I think what this podcast makes me realize too, is sometimes we feel like we're alone, whether you're thinking, okay, am I aging out? Or if you're young and you're on a new team or something, and then we realize that, you know, we're not alone a lot in our thinking. And the more you seek out and the more you talk to people that are willing to share that there's these lessons and we're not alone and people are overcoming things we never even imagined. It would be nice if we had more, right? Like this conversation, more of this, more in person, if we had, because there's hundreds of people like us in all different things in the world. And if we were all talking, we could all help each other get way better, but we don't because we're all isolated in our own little worlds. So I think for now, like through YouTube, whatever, this podcast, this is amazing. This is so such a great opportunity for anyone on it and yourself because we're doing that. Like we're helping each other and we're helping whoever's listening. That alone can erase, you know, this, this aging out thing. And I, I deal with it in my sport. My still my number one competitor. He's like, uh, he's 46 now. Yeah. And I'm like, Freddy Krueger. Yeah. I'm like, how, how is he doing this? Right. And we'll create all these stories that make no sense to try to convince ourselves he's a superhero, but he's not, he's still just a person. He's figuring out how to do this. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. I like that. Cause that's a point like getting behind the superhero capes. And I think that's a point too. Like for me, it's drowning out the highlight reel. And sometimes we don't post what's actually happening because we don't want to seem, we don't think that our lives are privileged or we feel like we're complaining or something. But a lot of the time there's these amazing stories behind it that they're not complaining. It's just showing what's behind it to uplift others with us or teach, you know, through your head injury, you can teach those, that coaching federation, how to help their athletes before they get, you know, hit upside the head and they have to make the lessons. But, but so the question that I really want to know, and that's the whole basis, I guess, and there's fear and there's courage and all these things, but what is bravery to you? Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's lots of different forms of it, but I'd say like what hit me right when I hear that word the most and from other things going on in my life right now and dealing with sponsors and other athletes and you know, mental health with you know, different people I know is, and just success in anything is like the hardest thing to do is like to face ourselves and take one, just to sit in ourselves, like be brave enough to face ourselves, And that's sit there with, with no distraction, with no no buzz, no sugar, no music, just sit there, let all the thoughts come in and face ourselves in the hard times, in challenging times, in exciting times, in painful times, to cut out distraction and just completely face ourselves. 
and take full ownership in when things go seemingly terribly wrong. When we feel angry, we're usually angry. We think we send it to someone else. We're angry. And I've had, I had this yesterday. I immediately got angry about something and I was at someone else. And then I thought about it and I thought about it. Brianne's like, okay, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sitting in the office. Leave me alone. I'm just sitting here. I'm sitting here. I'm thinking about it. And I realized now I'm just mad at myself. I'm so, it's always self. And I think the biggest and the most helpful tool for anyone is to just take full ownership in their circumstance, their situation, what's going on with them, not what's going on to them. and figure it out. There's people with, there's always someone with a seemingly worse circumstance that probably just feels fine. They've just figured it out. They've probably just figured themselves out more. Someone asked me recently, my, one of my friends who's not an athlete who couldn't understand, like, you know, how do you do this? How did you do that at this tournament? How did you come back? He saw me in a walking boot this summer. We were fishing. I couldn't even walk to the boat. Right. And I'm like, totally feeling useless. And I was sad and bombed and all summer watching everybody surf and ski and coaching my competitors in a walking boot, like just not fun stuff. My wife's pregnant. I'm not carrying the beach bag down to the sand. I'm like, just feel like a loser, but I'm like, I just owned it. It was horrible, but it's best for me to have done that. And I think that's, I think that's bravery. Like at least from my experience. Yeah, I agree. With my sports psych too, we work a little bit on naming the emotion. Sometimes it just is hard or it's sad or it's embarrassing or whatever it is. And then sitting in that, facing it, becoming okay with it. And also sometimes you have to look at it and find sometimes the reality of it, or if you can dissuade yourself from that, you know, sometimes I've sat there at skiing and been, I suck. This is so bad. I'm a failure, but then also looking at, okay, what was the success through it? You know, it wasn't all a failure. This is what went well. This is the lesson I learned, but this is the feeling I'm feeling and I'm going to sit in it for a while, but that's okay because I'm going to, you know, for me, it's always, what's the lesson I can learn. And that makes me feel a little bit better. And that's the the big question I get too from a lot of younger athletes is, and I think for me, I'm chasing, for lack of a better way to say it, what you have had, you know, consistency and being on the top of your game and having that flow state more often. So I chase it hard and I give everything I can for it. But then what keeps you motivated? Like, what do you strive for? And what do you, you know, you crave that feeling of flying. So are you craving to go even further? And your Instagram handle is rdod260. And 260 is what you want to go to beat the 254 world record. So what is your, you know, do you have that taped on your wall? What's your motivation? How do you get up when it's raining outside? You don't want to do it and you do it anyways. A lot of days I just don't do it. I like your honesty. <laughs> I've just, um, but I, and I've owned that. I've a lot of when I've the turning point in my career was I had this thing that it had to be this routinized. Like it had, I have routines, but like it had to be scheduled, and like omitting from it was like. But then I I realized like for so many years there, like I would sit with myself and feel, and our team coach Steve Bush was so confused for so many years. I'd be like, I have all this. And he's realized now, like I book the most training of everyone and I do the absolute least. I just want the most options at the, but because there's going to be a, there's going to be something that I listen to. And I'm like, no, no, 
not, I'm just not even skiing today. That's happens. And when I stopped listening to that, it got bad. And the same with when I had like the period, a lot of my period, I, like maybe that's why I'm, I, I want to get stronger, a lot stronger in the gym. And, but there's been so many days where for like, I know that if my mind is where it needs to be, I can do anything. And the body has to be secondary. And we're pushing the body so hard all the time. There's so many days I'm like, but then, then it gets a point, right? You can go too far with that, right? And you can get to where like, oh, wow, I, I, I am being lazy or I am getting scared of this, right? And I've had that too. And I had that in the last two years where like my judgment got clouded and I was like, I'm literally like hiding from my training. So there has to be, you know, you say we got to get up in the morning. The only way I think, you know, am, motivation, ambition fades for everyone. I think the only answer is can the routines being at least for myself, which I was so against routines being essential and consistency with them and having some sort of non-negotiable routines. Yeah. And that has been the motivate, whatever. I don't like think about motivation is that's been, then it comes sort of fueling that the things that will stoke it and knowing what they are for me are like, you have to create the motivation. It's not like I'm motivated, be more motivated. It doesn't work for me. Um, I'm already possibly just too ambitious or driven. So a lot of the times it's been like just chilling that out. And that's as an aging athlete, learning that like, no, just train and then just sit there. Don't try to remodel four houses at once and start a company and do this and coach and work out five hours after, you know, it's been really controlling myself. I don't know, but there's people are so different. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I've had coached so many athletes and been so stumped so many times. I, and I found out recently, a lot of these amazing performance coaches that coach PGA golfers and Olympic athletes, they don't know either. So yeah. Yeah. And we're all different. <laughs> yeah. I know we're all different too, because for me, sometimes it's just starting, or like you said, having this, um, not even a schedule, but for me, it's kind of my training schedule. I know what I need to get done in a day and that's, that has to get done. And, you know, today I was working out and it's, you can relate from being on the yeah. farm, like hat mitts, you know, I think at yeah. your farm, I was wearing three wetsuits and a hat skiing. If yeah. I did want to say something else, like the other thing, and I don't know how to differentiate between who this applies to or how this works, but I've seen it firsthand. And I saw it recently on this, this Netflix documentary with this tennis player. Maybe this will sound bad, but like not everyone's dream has to be to be this, the best or win or be a world champion or win stuff. And, you know, my wife's also an athlete and like, that's not her dream. Right. And we both do the same thing. We eat completely different. We do, we are completely different people and her being her best is totally. And what she wants is a completely different experience than me. And I see it with, I've seen it with a lot of kids that I've coached that this isn't the right fit for them. Like what I'm, what, what I'm doing isn't for them. And I don't want people to feel that pressure because comparison, my coach Jim said, comparison is the thief of all joy. We don't need to compare with everybody to do something that we feel is great. That's why I'm so on, like people need to decide for themselves what they want. 
and what they want to do. And that was like, that was hard for my wife and I at times because we had different, we were on different sort of missions and we still are. And she's been a critical part of mine, but I've seen it with kids that I've coached too. But there is, but the people that know, you said it to me, you said, so I, I believe you are capable of, of anything. If it's that deep in your mind, like you can, you can do it. The other part of it, the, the weirdest, and it's like, for example, I look back, hey, how did I do it, right? How did I get this world record? I thought back to what I think is the exact moment where it actually went from not really possible to possible. And that's why I keep saying to you that true, we got to find out how to truly believe it. This boat driver, Les Todd, he probably pulled you at the Junior Masters. I jumped this big jump at the Masters, 244, come in, course record. I was like, whoa, dude. I wasn't thinking about world record. Like, Les Todd jumps out of the boat and he grabbed me, Ryan, you went 244 feet at the Masters. You can break the world record. And he looked me, he, he grabbed me, he jumped out of the boat. And then I didn't think about it, but I felt it. Like, I felt that, like, he, like, just inserted belief. Or he made me believe, whatever. But he was so convincing. I was like, oh. And then I forgot about it. Didn't think about it at all. Went away to Mexico. I had a fun vacation. Came back, skied a few days and was like, boom, next day, boom, next day, boom. And then I went to a tournament like 10 days later and I got the feeling that week, I wasn't trying to break world record. I was just casually entered one round in this tournament. I was coaching kids all week. I was flying to Canada on the Sunday. I wasn't even skiing the second round. I wasn't even entered. I was flying out. But I got this feeling on the Monday. I'm like, something's happening here. I called Les. Hey, can you come drive me? I call my buddy Zach. You got the strong boat. Can you bring your boat down, dude? And I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to ski, Brianne. And then uh, Brianne just said, I'm like, Wednesday that week? She didn't tell me. But she's like, I knew you were breaking a world record. I had no idea. But then it just started coming that morning. Everything started happening. It was like, oh, the wind, the driver, the boat, this, that. And I just sat there and was like, and I had that moment that I told you about before this podcast was, I'm right now. It's happening. It was like, it was happening for me. I just, it's right now. I consciously said, it's happening now or never. I looked wow. at all the variables and it just hit me. And I, I don't say that yeah. like a couple times in my life. I've never said it since. I never said it before. And I was like, now or never. And I got tingles right now. And I got tingles then. This is, I do a little meditation before I go out. Did the meditation, opened my eyes, looked around, totally trippy and said that to myself. Went back into my routine, totally in a trance, put my stuff on, walked down to the dock, boom. Wow. Total, like not real. Yeah. And it was a full, it wasn't me. It was like something else happened. So. Yeah. And it's so cool too, because a boat driver can believe in you, give your head a yeah. bit of a shake and instill this like, total Psh. belief. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's pretty cool because you're doing that for other kids. I know Jarrett Llewellyn, who I don't know if you know, but he was your, uh, you yeah. grew up with him hero, but he was always my hero. Even when I continued Alpine skiing, he was my greatest hero in the sporting community. And I think that the big thing is you never know who you're going to influence and whose life you're going to touch. And that's so cool that he jumped out of the boat and he touched your life in such a way that it made you believe so strongly in yourself that you, you, it, it didn't, nothing just aligned, you know, you worked hard and you made it happen yeah. and you trusted your plan. And I think that that's such an amazing thing. And I just wanted to thank you for being here because I think a lot of people listening can learn, but for me, I can learn too. And 
you're the best in the world. And there's no, there's no way around that. And I just wanted to give you a big thanks for being here. And also a thanks for kind of merging our paths a little bit, because I definitely miss water skiing. I miss flying yeah. and hopefully your next jumps, you can take a few jumps for me. Sure. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you. That was awesome. Bye. Unspoken Bravery is hosted by me, Aaron Milzinski, produced by the team at Ginny Media and was created during the Podcast Accelerator program. Thank you for listening to Unspoken Bravery. My goal with this podcast is to connect with you through real life experiences. So I would love to hear from you. A hello, feedback, future ideas, you name it. You can reach me on my Instagram account at Aaron Milzinski or head to my website, aaronmilzinski.com. If you like the podcast, please share, review, and subscribe. I hope to see you back here to uncover your own hidden superhero.